Welcome to College Baseball 365 and a special postseason edition of This Week in ACC Baseball. I'm your host, Stu Murray. I'll be joined momentarily by my co-host, Josh White. And in this episode, we're really excited to unveil our all-ACC team, both first and second units. We'll also hand out end-of-year awards such as Head Coach of the Year, Position Player of the Year, Pitcher of the Year, Newcomer of the Year, I think True Freshman of the Year. we got quite a few things to talk about. I think most importantly in that discussion is the rationale for those selections. So stay tuned for that. We had a lot of fun chopping it up. But before we get there, it's my pleasure to introduce to the show North Carolina pitching coach Bryant Gaines. Coach Gaines is in his second stint at North Carolina. Uh, In between there, he was at Liberty on Scott Jackson's staff between 2017 and 2019. And he's been kind enough to join us here on the eve of the ACC tournament and talk about Carolina baseball. It's really a pleasure to welcome to the show, Bryant Gaines. Coach, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. Well, we're on the eve of, of postseason baseball here, and, and you certainly have plenty of experience in your, your early career. Still really a young guy, uh, but you've already been to Omaha five times, uh, four as a player, one as a coach. Uh, went to a regional with Liberty in 2019. And I wanted to go back to your playing days as a pitcher for Mike Fox at North Carolina, where you guys just had a crazy amount of success. Uh, I think it was five Omahas in six years, six in eight. Just unbelievable success. Can you maybe go back and and help us understand what that was like in the program when you guys were having such success? And what Mike Fox, now that he's stepped down, what he meant to you as 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 a mentor and as a head coach? Oh wow! Well, it's a it's a tough place to start um, in in a lot of ways. I think first and foremost, you know, being in the program in those years, um, it was such an exciting time. You know, not only as a player but as a program, um, there was a lot of great, a lot of great guys and great players that came through at that time. But I think the biggest thing is just the expectation of winning was at such a high level. Hmm. I mean, I can't ever remember um, a game where we didn't walk on the field and it was like, well, we're going to, we're going to win this game. You know, not to say that we, we minimized opponents because we certainly didn't, but you know, it was just something that we expected to do and we were in a position to do, and we worked really hard to try to do, you know, when we weren't playing. And, you know, I think that goes to, that goes to the second thing that you mentioned in coach Fox and that, you know, he, he's the one that set the table for all of that. You know, he held everybody to an extremely high standard as a player and, you know, he was very disciplined and a very competitive guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why those teams were so tough is, you know, they took on the personality of, of Coach Fox in a lot of ways. And, you know, him being a him being a guy that was a walk-on here at Carolina and kind of had to earn his way and, hmm. you know, made a name for himself as a player and then obviously started as a, as a D3 coach and then came here as a head coach. You know, he brought a very blue-collar type mentality um, as a head coach here. And I think that's one of the things that really shine through in the players, you know, myself being one is you had to earn everything and every year was a new year. And I think there's no coincidence that, you know, they're towards the end of his career, I guess, you know, such a long and great career. Those teams were, were so, so good. It's just because there was, there was such tremendous leadership under him. Well, we want to wish him all the best. He stepped down in August there amidst uh, all kinds of world turmoil, and it really didn't get the, mm-hmm. the the press coverage that I think it deserved. 22 outstanding years at Chapel Hill. And, of course, he passed the torch to your new boss, Scott Forbes, who's been in the program mm-hmm. for an awfully long time. I think he's done a great job in year one. 
But maybe you can just help our listeners understand um, what's unique about Scott Forbes. Um, I I think one of the one of the neatest things about him is he is who he is, <laughs> and 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 I say that because you know you know what you're going to get from him every day. You know you know the type of person he is when it comes to caring about his players. It's evident with how he interacts with them, how he handles them, whether they're, you know, performing well or they need to be kicked in the rear end or they're going through some failure. You know, he's great about being able to pull a guy aside and and help him through those types of things. And, you know, I think that's going to be one of his strengths moving forward is he has a really good relationship and a good pulse on, on the team, regardless of what we're going through, if we're playing well or if we're struggling. And, I think there's a lot of value in that, especially nowadays when, you know, you got to pay attention to a lot of things that the kids are going through and mm. kids are dealing with. And I think it's going to be something that's really, really going to help him and, and teams he coaches out, um, teams he coaches out moving forward. Well, I think you guys have done a great job down the stretch positioning yourself well for a postseason berth. We'll talk about your club here in a moment. But I mentioned your your three-year stint with Scott Jackson at Liberty. And I want to get your take on, I hate this term, but mid-major baseball, because there's such good baseball being played, particularly these days here with, with loaded rosters of experienced guys. Just in our region, VCU, Liberty, Charlotte, Old Dominion, all have RPIs of 34 or higher. Uh, you went to a regional, you beat Tennessee in, in 2019 as a member of that staff at Liberty. Can you talk a little bit about mid-major baseball and, and sort of maybe what some people don't fully appreciate about that, that game? Yes. You know, and I, I feel like it's such a bad term, like you yeah, said, yeah. you know, being mid-major. And, and I think if there's a huge misconception for for young players um, when they're when they're being recruited that, you know, baseball at a in a conference that's not the ACC, the SEC, you know, whatever it may be, isn't as good. That's not the case. Yep. You know, there's it doesn't matter who you play on a daily basis in college baseball. Everybody's good. And, you know, when we when we're preparing for a regional or a super, you know, you, you have to know those types of things. Cause if those teams are, if those teams are in it, they're, they've, they've got a few frontline arms that could pitch for anybody and they're going to be able to play defense and swing it offensively too. So, you know, especially this year, a lot of the, the mid-major teams, they have very, very old players. And when you have older players, you're typically a lot more mature. You've seen pretty much everything over the course of their career. And, you know, those teams are hard to beat, and that's something we had to remind our guys of a lot this year when we were playing midweek games is, hey, these guys are old, or hmm. you know what, these guys are experienced. They've been in regionals, you know, and it's something that, you know, we certainly as coaches don't take for granted, but it's something we have to remind our guys of because everybody is just so, so talented. And I think probably one of the only things that really separates, you know, at this level from maybe – um, a conference that's not in a power five is probably just the depth. You know, you may be able to, you may be, you may have five or six or seven, you know, dependable guys on the mound um, at a, at a mid major. Whereas, you know, if you, if you're at a high level um, school or you're at a, you're in a power five conference, there may be a little bit more depth, but essentially I think the talent levels at about the same when you're, when you're rolling out a starting lineup, it's just a matter of how deep those rosters and lineups can actually be. Well, you look at the records of those teams and they've knocked off, uh, you know, you guys knocked off yep. ECU, knocked off Tennessee, uh, you know, yep. Wake, UVA, there are a lot of good wins there at that level. So I think we're going to be in for a really fun and uh, might I say chaotic regional season here with a lot of upsets. 
Um, let's talk about your club, Coach. Um, you know, two weeks ago, you were sort of on the outside looking in, perhaps. Uh, you were facing Louisville in a really an important home series, and you swept those guys. I want to talk about Austin Love, your Friday guy who's just been flat dominant, particularly of late. He's getting up there in innings, almost 90 innings, and he's still pumping mid-90s fastballs. 15 strikeouts, no walks against Georgia Tech last Friday. You've mentored a lot of pro players. Uh, how do you assess Austin Love, and what does he mean to your staff? Oh, man, I, there's not enough good things that I can say about Austin Love. I think it starts with the fact that he was a walk-on here. Um, he wow. redshirted his he redshirted his freshman year, um, and he's the type of kid where all he says is yes, sir, and he trusts you, and he he's willing to do whatever whatever we deem best for our team. And I think that's why he's had so much success. I mean, hmm. last year last year we told him he was going to be our closer, and the only thing he said was yes, sir. And looking back on it, <laughs> we probably we probably should have started him. And, you know, it's funny because you, you close him last year. He says, yes, sir. Austin, you're going to start this year. He says, yes, sir. And, you know, it's just such a credit to him because he's worked extremely hard. He wants to win. And, you know, I don't see I, – I, I can't find a reason why a, a, a big league club would not take Austin Love because I think he's one of the, one of the safest and most exciting mm. picks that you can have moving forward just because he's done, he's done everything – that you can ask for at the collegiate level. I'm excited to see what he's going to do here moving forward for us this year. And, you know, he's one of those kids that as you're watching on a, in a game like the other night at Georgia Tech, you, you have to you have to remind yourself, hey, enjoy this because guys like this, don't they don't come around all that often. No doubt about it. I had the pleasure of being there Friday for that Louisville game. And you know, he's all of 6'3", about 240 it looks like. You know, it looks like a mm-hmm. linebacker. And, and like I said, I mean, he's pumping mid-90s. There is no drop-off in velo, and I'm sure scouts love his durability. He looks like 200 innings a, a year for a decade, perhaps, for an MLB That's right. team. Um, of course, you've, you've had some injuries in your pitching staff. Joey Lancelotti went down. Uh, you had Max Carlson was a highly touted freshman. He is on the shelf. But you put together, sort of cobbled together, a cadre of arms that come from different slots and different type guys and, and made it happen. You're here on the on the eve of the ACC tournament. Talk about some of the arms that you're going to be using uh, this week here in hopes of winning an ACC title. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, we've had to depend on some other guys to step up in, in some ways that probably they weren't necessarily ready to yet. Um, so we've had some growing pains with that. But we've had some guys perform well here as of late against some really good opponents. And we're going to start Connor Olio on Tuesday um, against Pitt. He's he's looked really good as of late, and he can use both sides of the plate and has a pretty good three to four pitch mix depending on the day. And you know, a guy like Nick Pry, he's been extremely dependable for mm-hmm. us out of the bullpen. Sean Rapp, we've started him um, in in ACC play for. I mean, his first career start was against Miami, and he he went out there and performed extremely well, helped us win the back end of a doubleheader. Um, and then, you know, we've had a few other guys, you know, step up as well too. Caden O'Brien's been extremely good for us. He, he struggled a little bit at Georgia Tech this past weekend, but he's a tough kid who's pitched in Omaha, which is extremely valuable for us since we're pretty young in some areas. And, you know, we've got a few other ones that, that we're going to have to call upon here in this ACC tournament because you're playing so many games in such a short amount of uh, days, but you know, probably one of the biggest ones for us this year has been Gage Gillian, a, hmm. a junior college transfer. Who's, I mean, it's it's 
it's three pitches at any time and you know he's he's got a funky arm slot it's it gets on you pretty quick he holds runners well and he's he's been the guy we've leaned on pretty heavily as of late to get us out of pretty much any jam that we could get into so if i told you exactly how it was going to shake out in the <laughs> tournament I'd, I'd be lying to you but you know we're excited to see what those guys can do because they've had their fair share of adversity and they've had their fair share of success and we're hoping we can all we can put it all together here this week so just a couple other things on on your guys before i let you go uh, looking at your position players i mean you've had some guys that have been around the program that have had really nice years i mean angels arate and caleb roberts two guys that have been really productive for you i want to get your take on your true freshman catcher tomas frick He's been really a stalwart there since day one. He he handles the bat well. He throws the ball well. I mean, what have you seen from him, and what do you expect from him in the coming years? Uh, he's probably one of the players that we're most excited about moving forward, and it's because he's so competitive. Um, he brings so much to our pitching staff just because, you know, he really recognizes patterns with hitters, you know, how we sequence them. Um, but he's extremely, extremely competitive, and – you know, if he, I, I'm probably selfish thinking about just the catching part of it. If he brings every, if he, if he brings what we know we, he can bring offensively, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with, you know, for the next couple of years in the middle of our order. But I think he's going to be one of the best defensive catchers um, to have come through Carolina. And I know there's been a lot of good ones in the past, but he's just so competitive. He, he runs a good game back there and, you know, he, he really wants to win, and our our pitchers see that because he brings so much energy back there. And he's been beat up a lot to catch catch every game, you know, almost as a freshman, but he's handled it well, and, you know, he showed up every day, and he's, he's learning how to recover and how to take care of his body, and he's one that we're extremely excited about moving forward. Yeah, Tomas Frick, uh, named to, to follow here in the coming years. And another guy here just up the middle to talk about center fielder Justice Thompson, who's really been a revelation coming from a Florida JC, uh, a defender, uh, an instinctual player. He's got some pop. He can run. I really like this kid's baseball savvy. So is there anyone he reminds you of, and how good can this guy really be in two, three, four years? Oh, man, I, I'm, I, think, I think he's going to be playing on TV at some point here soon. He, the, the guy that he reminds me of is Dexter Fowler. Hmm. Um, wow. Because, you know, he's tall, he's long. Um, he's, you know, he came out of a junior college. He wasn't even recruited out of, out of, out of high school. He, he was given a spot at his JUCO and then Coach Forbes went down to Florida and saw him play a little bit and, you know, liked how he played and liked his energy. And so next thing you know, he's here and he's just continued to get better since he's gotten here. And, you know, he's, if it wasn't for JT in the outfield, I mean, I, <laughs> He's he he covers light pole to light pole, and that's that's extremely valuable when you're talking about you know a pitching staff where we got some inexperience. He's he's made some plays that have helped our guys on the mound gain a lot of confidence, and you know I think as he plays as he continues to play higher and higher level competition, I think he's only going to get better because he's got that type of athleticism. No doubt. I mean, he'll lay down a bunt and then steal second on you, and you don't know what happened. I mean, he's uh, just really right. an electric player and so much fun to watch. Yeah. Hey, before I let you go, I mean, you, you faced uh, and prepared for some of the best bats in the country here in the ACC uh, as you scouted them and then and then competed against them over the last 12 weekends. Are there two or three uh, you know, ACC bats that have most impressed you uh, over the last couple months? Oh, man. You know, we were talking about this as a staff um, the other day. I was just asking the other coaches what they thought 
Uh, there's so many talented players this year um, in the ACC, and if I, I'm probably leaving out a couple, um, but I, I think you know Adrian Del Castillo at Clemson, such a or excuse me at Miami, such a good hitter, um, such a good catcher too. Hmm. He's going to be one that I think we'll look back on and say, man, I remember calling pitches against him. I know uh, Henry Davis at Louisville. He didn't have a good weekend against us, thank goodness, um, but. <laughs> But he's he he's one of the more one of the more impressive bats to watch. He hit a ball off of Austin that was, I mean, just blistered, and it showed it showed his level of ability. And then you know, there's a couple Robbie Martin at Florida State, extremely mm-hmm. talented. You know, Johnny Butler at NC State, extremely talented. There's just there's so many in the middle of those lineups this year that are. They're so so talented, and then you got some like at Georgia Tech, like Kevin Parada. I think he's a, wow. I think he's going to be a great great player in our league as well. I um, mean, he's only a freshman, so you know it's it was it was valuable for us to to play all those teams because now we know a pretty good idea of what everybody's got coming back and what it's going to look like moving forward. But there's a lot of good offense, that's for sure, in the ACC this year. Well, it's all coming together in Charlotte uh, starting tomorrow. You guys open uh, at the night game against Pitt, seven p.m to kick off your ACC tournament. Then you have a couple days off before coming back on Friday to face NC State. That could be a lot of fun. want to wish you all the best, Bryant. Uh, thanks so much for taking some time during your busy schedule, and uh, we'll be following up with you down the road. You got it. Thanks for having me on. That's Bryant Gaines, pitching coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels. Happy to be joined again by my partner in crime, Josh White. Josh, we made it this far. We're on the eve of the conference tournament. And lots to look back on in this uh, this wacky ACC season. Dude, this season has been so weird for so many reasons. But but I think when you just look at the standings and you look at some of the players that broke out, it, none of it was expected, but it, it's made it exciting. And I'd imagine this week in Charlotte will be exciting. And what teams make you know regionals and beyond that will be exciting to watch as well. Yeah, it's, as, as we said at the outset, it's really a marathon and it's been uh, filled with peaks and valleys. And, and here we are. And what we're going to do now is we're going to we're going to take a deep dive into our all ACC performers, a first and second team. I think we'll also throw some honorable mentions out there as well. Talk about a player of the year, a pitcher of the year, coach of the year. Uh, I think we have a newcomer of the year. We have a true freshman of the year. Lots to talk about. And I think before you you talk about you know awards, I think criteria is is really really important. So what we're looking at here when we evaluate these players for the various recognition is. Their total game, so hitting, base running, defending, um, you know, trends. Did they finish strong? Had their teams do? Did they play a premium position? All that sort of thing kind of rolls into uh, what we're going to share with you today uh, from the position side. And on the pitching side, you know, it's it's uh, how dominant were you? Um, you know, where were you in the rotation? How many big wins did you have? How did you finish, etc. Um, so it's, it's just important to, to uh, we're not talking about prospects. These aren't the best pro prospects. These are the guys that most contributed to their team's success this year. So you ready to get after it, Josh? Well, let's do it. I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, what kind of helped us split hairs at the end of it and trying to narrow it down to a first team, a second team and an honorable mention. So speaking of splitting hairs catcher, I, I think you'd be hard pressed in the country to find two more worthy candidates of, of catcher. First team catcher in the ACC, Henry Davis and Matt Nelson. And uh, how did you sort of size them up, Josh? 
I think most years Henry Davis finishes as the first team catcher. And, and to your point, you know, in, in any conference, you'd be hard pressed to find two as good as them. To me, just how consistent Nelson was straight through the entire year, the surge that he went on power wise and RBIs to finish, you know, the regular season as the nation's home run leader with 22, have 63 RBIs, which is tied for second in the country. He was so, so good. And that's not to take away anything from Henry Davis. And if this was about pro prospects, Henry Davis would be ahead of Matt Nelson. But to what we kind of set the criteria as, what did they contribute to their team? How did they finish? I think Nelson ekes out Henry Davis as the first team catcher. That doesn't mean Henry Davis isn't the second team catcher. I think he's clearly a slam dunk. And these two are probably in a whole nother category than the guys that would follow. That's no disrespect you know, to the guys that are after them. It's just all the credit in the world to what Matt Nelson and Henry Davis did this year. So I think the way it irons out is Nelson won, Davis two. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the other thing about Nelson is he didn't have a whole lot of support around him. I mean, Florida State had one of the, uh, I wouldn't call it an anemic offense, but they struggled to score runs and he was their key cog. Defensively, he throws out more than his share of guys. I saw him this weekend. He's got a legitimate arm, a good defender back there. Um, you know, Davis... One thing about Davis, his strikeout rate is under 11%, which was fifth best in the ACC. Um, you know, he runs the uh, runs the bases well. I mean, he's a complete package, but I'm with you. It's Matt Nelson is our first team catcher. Henry Davis, our second team catcher. And uh, what are your thoughts on, on an honorable mention? You're a lot of other guys uh, worthy of consideration, but who you got? Yeah, I think honorable mention at the start of the year, you, you saw this league that probably had five or six catchers deep. So it's hard to just narrow it down to, to three. But I think Nelson and Davis are in their own level, their own box, their own category. And then I think the guy that takes the cake for the honorable mention is Kevin Parada. I think the year that he had at Georgia Tech tailed off just a smidge at the end. But I think he separated themselves from guys like Luca Trash and Adrian Del Castillo that I think Kevin Parada is the honorable mention catcher in the ACC. There we go. Let's go to first base here. And I think here we had a, a pretty easy consensus that Nico Cavadas of Notre Dame is the first team uh, all ACC first baseman, 15 homers. Uh, his OPS was almost 1,200. Yeah, he only struck out 23% of the time, which for that power is is more than a fair trade-off and a huge reason why Notre Dame's offense, particularly in the first two-thirds of the year, uh, was so effective. Yeah, and there's a reason why they were one of the best teams, you know, not just in the ACC, but in the country, and they were the best team in the ACC in large part to Nico Cavadas, what he did offensively. You know, he's the meat of that lineup, the heartbeat of that lineup. And I think it's huge. You know, a guy at first base, you're expecting big power numbers. You're expecting him to deliver in that way. A 727 slugging percentage that, you know, what you mentioned, the near 1200 OPS. He gets on, he hits homers, he drives and runs, hits the ball gap to gap. I, I think he's the clear slam dunk, all ACC first team, first baseman. And as a second team guy, a guy who really finished strong and had a, a nice career at Wake Forest, that's Bobby Seymour. He finished with with 20 homers, uh, a weighted on-base average. We looked at weighted on-base average. It's a statistic that we really value for offensive production with the bat. And he had the seventh best uh, WOBA, as it's known, in the ACC. Uh, so Seymour caps a really nice career at Wake Forest um, with a second team all-ACC nod. Yeah, I, I think with Seymour, the one downside is the defense a little bit, and he got off to a slow start. But the way he finished and the way that he you know, contributed to that Wake Forest team, even though they were out of it and they didn't have a good finish as a team themselves, you know, they battled injury throughout the year, they had a big COVID pause, 
that affected them. But to finish second in the conference in home runs with 21, to have 55 RBIs and be third there as well, that's what you're looking for from a first baseman. So I think Bobby Seymour's, you know, there's a little bit of a gap and distance between Cavanaugh and Seymour. But I think he's clearly the second team first baseman. Yeah, I think that's really a good point around how, you know, Wake really scuffled down the stretch. They did win at the end there, but Seymour stayed pretty steady and only got hotter uh, toward the end. So props to Bobby Seymour. Lots of uh, potential candidates for honorable mention. Austin Murr of NC State, TJ Rumfeld of Virginia Tech, Chris Crabtree had a really nice year for Duke. But we're going to go with a true freshman in Caden Grice from Clemson as our honorable mention first baseman. This, this dude's power is as formidable as any that I saw all season watching batting practice. Uh, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with over the next two years at, at Clemson. Yeah, I think when you talk about, you know, that we've discussed with some of these players already, that not having much help in your lineup, I think that's what the story is with Caden Grice. We had talked for weeks, to when is this Clemson offense going to get going? That's, you know, one of the things that's holding them back. And Grice was the guy that just kept delivering and delivering and delivering. Outside of maybe James Parker in the middle of that lineup, it was Caden Grice that carried that offense. So I think he finishes third in that first base race and is kind of ekes him out ahead of, you know, Chris Crabtree and Austin Murray in first base to be the honorable mention guy. Yep. So let's look at second base, Josh. How did you uh, slice and dice those candidates? Second base is hard because uh, there's two guys at second base that I think are clearly ahead of everyone else, but they're very, very different players. You have Cody Morissette who's more of a contact guy, gets on, runs well, plays a good second base. And then you have David Yanni, who's a power second baseman, doesn't hit for average the same, strikes out significantly more. So it's tough. It, it is neck and neck. I, I think the edge by the slightest margin possible goes to Morissette, but it, it, it is so, so tight when you break down the numbers, and, and, and it's hard to compare because they are very different players. But I think I go Morissette, that maybe the running is the the slight advantage that puts him over the top when you're looking at the full game, the running and the defense. And then Yanni's the second team, second baseman. What do you think about that, Stu? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think the point here is both these guys had really good years. In Morissette's case, he played hurt. He lost some time in the middle of the year. Uh, this was a guy who was a back-end first-rounder, certainly a day-one draft uh, prospect here this coming year. And he could have sat out and padded his numbers, but he went out and tried to help uh, Boston College win games with two mangled fingers. And he only got stronger as the season went on. So I think Morissette gets the slight nod. Yanni's a great story. You know, they call him Gramps there at Pitt. Was a shortstop for many years and was pushed over to second base where he could just work on his on his bat. And he delivered with 12 homers and, and, and 12 doubles and really was a key piece of that offense. So we'll go Morissette as our first team. David Yanni is our second team, all ACC second baseman. And who you got is an honorable mention. We talked about it this year, Josh. Yeah, the, the honorable mention in, in this category is so tough. At second base, you have Cooper Bowman, who is so good for Louisville at the start of the year, and then he tailed off. And then you had Anthony Villar, who was just steady, consistent presence in that Miami lineup. I, I think you're, you, know, you, can, you can't go wrong with either guy. I, I think the edge goes to Bowman, but but it's tough. I honestly don't know if there's a bad honorable mention of those two <laughs> at second base. They're they're 3A and they're 3B among second basemen um, in the conference. I guess gun to my head and I got to pick one right now. I'll, I'll say Cooper Bowman. And there we go. Third base is one that we we struggled with uh, because there are several candidates that are very have very different profiles and. Two that sort of rose to the top were Sky Duff of Pitt and Justin Henry Malloy of Georgia Tech. Uh, very different bodies, very different projection. 
Um, but this year, you know, we, we had a good debate, Josh, around third base is where you want to see power. And I, I, I agree with that. I think third base is also where you want to see some defense. And I think at the end of the day, we went Sky Duff uh, as our first team third baseman. He hit 365 for Pitt, an OPS just under 1,000. Uh, he had gap power with 18 doubles. Um, he fielded at a 926 clip, which is, which is pretty good for a second baseman. So he just eked out Justin Henry Malloy, whose potential is almost unlimited. But uh, in my opinion, what held uh, Justin Henry Malloy back this year were 17 errors at third base. Um, but his bat is serious. Um, and he also had some big moments in the clutch for Georgia Tech. Yeah, I think it's another position where there's two clear guys that, you know, 1A, 1B, you're, you're splitting hairs of which guy to go with. But I, I think the reasons to what you said of why Duff takes it just a more, I think defensively, I think that's enough to squeak him by. And then you got to look for Justin Henry Malloy. He came through in so many of those big moments, but he had a little more help in that lineup, whether it was Kevin Parada, Drew Compton was big in some spots earlier in the year. I, I think with Pittsburgh, they weren't a team offensively at, at certain points throughout the year where you were like, oh, this is a team that scares me offensively. And Duff was just that consistent guy that got on base, ran well, kind of ignited that offense for Pitt. So I think Duff just by, I don't know, the thinnest of margins. And again, very different types of players, very different types of years. But I think Duff, by the thinnest of margins, takes the cake for third base. Yeah, Mike Bell did a really nice job with that infield at Pitt. I mean, he brought in Brock Franks, uh, a JC transfer at shortstop, and that allowed Yanni to go to second base, and it pushed Duff over to third base where he played most of the year. So Duff was actually out of position somewhat at a new position, and he really was a key cog offensively. Some other guys that certainly uh, are worthy of recognition, Zach Geloff at Virginia, Luke Gold had a nice year for Boston College, Kevin Madden at Virginia Tech. But we're going with a true freshman as our honorable mention third baseman, and who is that? It's Brock Wilkin of Wake Forest. It's go. hard when a guy, you know, he's in the running for freshman of the year and, and when you hit 17 home runs. And, and I know, granted, you know, there's more hitter-friendly ballparks than pitcher-friendly ballparks, but Wilkin did it no matter what ballpark he was in. The year that he had, again, the average is a little low, but the slogging is so great, especially for a young third baseman like that. So I think he's the clear honorable mention third baseman. One thing interesting about Wilkin, you know, he's a power guy first and foremost. He only struck out 16% of the time. So he's got a hit tool there, puts the ball in play. And, and, and talking to Bill Salento, the hitting coach there at Wake Forest, he calls this guy a transformational player. So look for Brock Wilkin in the future to be the offensive cog they build around at Wake Forest. Now, shortstop, I think there were three guys that sort of separated themselves from the competition here. Um, and Josh, you know, you did a really nice job sort of dissecting their records and resumes. Uh, how did that uh, shake out for you? Well, I think the three guys that you're kind of alluding to are Luke Waddell, Jose Torres, and, and James Parker. And and Waddell and Torres, I think you're looking at whether it's first team or second team. And they're almost the same. Very, very similar guys in terms of consistent offensively. They play a great defensive shortstop. I think the advantage for Waddell is that he's the leader of that offense. He's been in that clubhouse for what's felt like an eternity without Luke Waddell, that Georgia Tech team isn't the same that they are. They don't win the Coastal Division. So I think Waddell is the first team All-ACC shortstop, just at what he was able to do. And then Jose Torres, you know, they are so close. They're so similar. And NC State finished so strong. But I think he just finishes in second behind Waddell. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think what you mentioned is really important, the steady presence for Georgia Tech. They were kind of erratic, particularly defensively, and he really solidified 
the infield defense. Waddell was also the most difficult hitter to strike out in the entire conference under 6% K rate. Torres, I think, you know, he's going to get drafted and drafted pretty high this uh, this summer. Uh, legitimate shortstop at the next level. The one thing that's really encouraging about him is his hit tool. He hit almost 310, but he cut his strikeout rate in half from last year. I know scouts love to see that. So Torres is going to be, I think, a, a really, really good pro at the next level. And Parker, you know, he was steady for Clemson, uh, played a good defense, was one of their most reliable hitters. And so James Parker will be our honorable mention at shortstop. How about outfield? We had, uh, we really sort of chewed on this for a while, trying to get six guys and get them in the right spots for first and second team. Let's talk about the one guy who clearly separated himself on first team, and that's Johnny Butler. Absolutely a sick end of the season. Um, he finished on an 11-game multiple hit streak where he went 29 for 50 with six homers. Uh, he finished the year at 406, had the second highest OPS in the league, stole 14 bags without getting caught, and played a good defense in left field. So it was pretty clear that Butler was our guy as the number one outfielder in the ACC. Yeah, I think if you had to pick one outfielder, it's clearly Johnny Butler, and, and there's nobody even close. And and again, when you're looking at guys who had the most impactful years in the ACC, if Matt Nelson doesn't have the year that he has, Johnny Butler is hmm. head and shoulders ahead of anyone else. He, to hit over 400, to have the power that he did, to steal bases like that, and the finish that he had to take an NC State team that started 1-8 in conference play and make them the three seed in the ACC was incredible. I think it's no question that Johnny Butler, if you look on any all-ACC team this year, it'll be Butler for sure. And our, our second uh, or two outfielders there on the first team, uh, his teammate Tyler McDonough, who I saw an awful lot of at center field, played a tremendous defense. Uh, for NC State. Also hit 13 homers, stole some bags, only made one error, really came on strong down the stretch there. And I think he played himself into the top five rounds of this upcoming draft. He reminds me so much of a guy I know you know from the Cape. That's Caden Polkovich, uh, Oklahoma State. He went 78th overall two years ago in the draft. Um, and I think McDonough is, is a carbon copy of Polkovich. I love this kid. And uh, he's also a first team all ACC outfielder. Yeah, I think it's it's crazy to think that one team has two of the three outfielders, but that's how good Butler and McDonough were. And, and especially, again, given how they finished, given how the team finished, without those two guys for a while, Stu, we were talking about NC State not even making, you know, not just the ACC tournament, but they were going to make the NCAA tournament. Now they're the number three seed and the years that they were able to put together. And you think of McDonough as a defensive guy that runs really well. He had 13 home runs, so... It's not like you're saying he doesn't hit for power or anything like that. He's a guy that, you know, can can add some value from a power standpoint, top 10 in the, the conference in OPS. I, I think he was another easier pick for the outfield spot. Yep, I agree. And, and what really makes him of value to major league evaluators is his versatility. He plays second base. He plays third base, just like uh, Polkovich did, um, and brings power and speed to the game. We really sort of hemmed in hard. We looked at Duke closely for our third first-team outfielder between Joey Loperfito and R.J. Shrek. And at the end of the day, we leaned Shrek. Yeah, I, I think Shrek, again, just how do you not take a guy that has nearly an 1,100 OPS, hit 350, hit 15 home runs, stole 11 bases. Joey Loperfito was so good, too, but it's hard to take two guys on the same team. Now, we just did it <laughs> with Johnny <laughs> Butler and and Tyler McDonough, but those were the best two outfielders 
in the conference, I think when you're looking at number three and number four, it probably came down to just a little more offensive power for Shrek. You know, 10 more home runs, another 22 RBIs on top of what Loperfito had. I think that was the difference now. Again, positionally plays a little bit of a part. Loperfito's the center fielder. Shrek is the left fielder. But I think defensively in left field, and I know it's left field, not center field, Shrek was great out there, and I think that gives him enough over Loperfito. Yeah, I think the 15 bombs was was probably the separator. He also stole 11 of 12 bags to R.J. Shrek. So that rounds out our first-team ACC outfield, Johnny Butler, Tyler McDonough, and R.J. Shrek. Joey Loperfito is on the second team. Um, happy for this kid. He really came back this year and, and had a really strong year. He hit 360 for Chris Pollard. Um, and, and was really instrumental in their late season surge. I think they won eight in a row. Uh, remember uh, you saying that correctly there, Josh Duke, to get back into the story. The other two outfielders, Gavin Cross uh, of Virginia Tech, had a fantastic first three quarters of the year and then kind of fell off a little bit, as did uh, Virginia Tech in general. But this kid is, a, is really a, a, a fantastic bat. He can defend, he can throw, he can run, hit three fifty seven. Um, he, there's a lot to like about Gavin Cross. Stu, it is such a shame that we only have three spots on, you know, each team because there's probably seven or eight outfielders that, you know, could be in the running, but yeah, there's, there's so much to like, uh, with Gavin Cross. He, he did teeter off a little bit at the end. You know, that's kind of the story with Virginia Tech. They were so good at the beginning of the year, but to have a guy like that provide that power, you're not just talking about the home runs and doubles. He had five triples too, which I think plays a big part. The strikeout rate's a little high, but that's what you're going to expect when you get an outfield that hits with power like that in the corner. And I think he had such a strong year for them. I think it's hard to leave him off the All-ACC second team, even though that makes it maybe a little harder on a couple other guys that might follow. Yeah, this is the last thing on, on Cross is his oppo power. I mean, it's easy opposite field power. You mentioned the uh, the five triples. He's got really good baseball speed and instincts. He'll be playing for Brewster this summer if he's not on Team USA. Uh, so look for Gavin Cross here this summer. So the, the, the rounding out our top six outfielders here in the last spot on our second team is Sal Freilich. Um, this guy had both a really good year and is probably a top 10 overall pick as we're looking at June uh, in the MLB drafts. So tell us a little bit about Sal Freilich and his year, Josh. Yeah, I think Freilich, when you look at it defensively, he might be the best defensive player uh, in the conference, which I think plays a big part, especially in center field. But offensively, he did what Sal Freilich does, over 1,000 OPS, 17 doubles, which is towards the top of the conference, an extremely good base stealer, 13 stolen bases. The strikeout-to-walk ratio is another metric for a guy like Sal Freilich that hits towards the top of your lineup that you look at. He had 27 walks and 28 strikeouts, so that's pretty wow. good. And I think it's just, again, that extra power, that extra defense puts him ahead of a guy in the second team, like a Christian Del Castillo, that if there were nine outfielders to pick from, I think all seven of those guys make a team. But I think Christian Del Castillo just falls slightly behind Sal Freyler. Yeah, Christian had such a great uh, year. The expectations were low. He wasn't given an outfield spot to start uh, the season, earned it, and led that team in hitting a great story there, joining his brother, um, so I know, tell us a little bit about Christian Del Castillo and, and sort of what surprised you as you watched him a lot over the spring. Well, he, he had never hit more than 285 at Seton Hall. So to your point, he was wow. not guaranteed a spot. He almost recruited himself to Miami. Miami didn't go after him. And they said, yep, you can come in. 
I think the coaching staff probably thought he's going to be, you know, either the third or fourth outfielder. And he was not just the best outfielder. He was the team MVP. He was the team newcomer of the year. He was so good, so consistent the entire year. It's a shame that he's not on our first or second team, but that's just how good and how deep the outfielders were in this 2021 season. He had more home runs than his brother, and that's pretty weird to say. He was second on the team in RBIs, but he does it all. Played left, played center, played right. Wherever the coaching staff asked him to hit in the lineup, he was so consistent, so good from start to finish, and he finished the regular season second in the conference in batting average, only behind Johnny Butler. Wow. If they don't have him, I think that record looks a little bit different uh, down in Coral Gables. So props to Christian Del Castillo on a really, really good senior transfer year. So that'll do it for our position players. Now let's talk about the starting pitching here. We had a really good debate on this, Josh. Uh, two guys clearly separated themselves at the top. Andrew Abbott and Parker Messick are our first uh, team pitchers. I know you're really familiar with Andrew Abbott from uh, watching him on the Cape. Tell us a bit about his year. Yeah, I think with Andrew Abbott, you looked at a guy that probably could have gotten drafted last year, even just in the five rounds. But let's say the draft is six rounds, he probably wouldn't have come back. But he was so good. And the way that he finished, I think, plays a huge part to go back-to-back weekends, the way that he walked off the mound at home to go seven and a third, not allow a hit in one of those last starts. He was incredible, 287 ERA. The whip was really good at 111. He had 126 strikeouts and 81 and two-thirds that led the conference in strikeouts. He was top five in the nation in strikeouts as well. And think about a Virginia team that hasn't provided much offense as they would like this year. Without Andrew Abbott, they're probably not in this playoff picture. I, I think he's been the best pitcher in the conference. I think it's close with Parker Messick, but I think Abbott's slightly ahead of him. And just his development of a guy that was a multi-inning reliever to start his career, to become a starting pitcher, a fastball that sits in the low to mid-90s, a good changeup, a devastating curveball, a legitimate three-pitch mix that's an athletic freak on the mound. And I think that for Virginia has given them a chance in this conference. Yeah, really happy for Abbott. He made some money this year, not getting drafted last year. He only improved his stock, and uh, you, you love to see that. Also got his degree early at UVA. You know, Parker Messick is another guy. He was a reliever last year, was given the ball early as the Friday guy for Florida State, and did not disappoint at all. Uh, had a tremendous year. He's a, he's a fiery kid, uh, really a, a catalyst for that Florida State locker room. Um, and certainly deserving of the first team uh, All-ACC pitching staff. So the, the second team, guys, uh, we talked a little bit about this, and, and Austin Love is a guy that we think deserves a shot. And again, a lot of that is based on how he finished the last two games against Louisville and Georgia Tech. He was flat dominant, closed the year with a 15-strikeout, no-walk complete game at Georgia Tech, and was pumping 97-mile-an-hour fastballs late in that ninth inning. Uh, Love is another guy you know from the Cape. Tell us a bit about him, Josh. Yeah, I think with Love, he's just a workhorse on the mound. And you knew that every week you're going to get a good Friday night start from Austin Love. And, and he would keep you in the game. And, and that's what he did the same way. Two complete games this year. You mentioned the last one. 130 pitches in. He's not giving up the ball. And, and North Carolina needed every single win that they had in the regular season. Very similar to Abbott you know, from the right side in terms of just a fastball changeup and a curve that love has, but those two guys dominant on the mound in terms of just not giving up the ball. You know what you're getting on Friday night from those two guys. I think the four that make the first team and the second team between Abbott, Messick, Bertrand, and love had phenomenal years 
as the ace of their team, that it was quite clear of who it was. And without those guys, you're looking at completely different seasons for all four of those teams. No question about it. You mentioned John Michael Bertrand and Notre Dame uh, came over from Furman and really through, was incredibly consistent throughout the year. I think he was second in the, uh, in the ACC and ERA, got the ball every Saturday and was dependable as the day is long for Link Jarrett. Uh, so he is our, our other second team all ACC pitcher. Great job, John Michael Bertrand from uh, from Furman. We had some guys like Emmett Sheehan and Mitch Myers and some others that we talked about had some really good years. But at the end of the day, these four rose above the others. Um, a couple other categories here. How about newcomer of the year? John Michael Bertrand certainly would be a great candidate for that. Uh, Christian Del Castillo. Uh, who, who ultimately gets that award in your mind, Josh? I think newcomer of the year, you're looking at Christian Del Castillo, maybe Justice Thompson uh, of North Carolina. I, I think you do a co-newcomer of the year because, again, those were two of the guys that led those offenses. They had phenomenal years, probably two of the top 10 or 15 players uh, in the conference this year. And, and, and again, it, it's hard to say. You know, obviously they're experienced guys. Del Castillo playing four years at Seton Hall, Justice Thompson as a transfer from the junior college ranks, but I think those are the two clear guys that separated themselves from newcomer of the year. Yeah, I completely agree. Justice Thompson, I think that's a name for next year. Uh, if he doesn't get drafted this year, I think he is draft eligible, but he's got pro prospect written all over him. Uh, some other guys that had really nice years, TJ Rumfeld from Texas Tech came over to Virginia Tech and solidified the middle of that order. Uh, Peter Matt uh, for Duke uh, hit 310 with 12 homers. Uh, so there are quite a few newcomers here that distinguish themselves in the ACC, uh, but we'll go with those that, that, that Josh just mentioned. How about reliever of the year here? I think there's a clear candidate. Uh, so much was expected of him. He often pitched twice during the weekend to nail down wins, and that was Carson Palmquist of Miami. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a question what Palmquist did. And if he qualified in terms of innings, I think that would be you know kind of what might consider him a first team or second team. Uh, mentioned, but a 138 ERA, a whip of 0.62. The strikeout to walk ratio is mind boggling 69 strikeouts and six walks. He was incredible. Miami gave him the ball that, you know, if they needed six outs, they got six outs. They needed nine outs, they gave it to him. They didn't care. They knew what they were getting. I think he's the clear slam dunk reliever of the year, first team reliever, uh, if you will. Tanner Kolhep, I think, is behind him a considerable amount, but I think he's kind of just putting himself in that two spot just ahead of a couple other guys. I think, again, similar kind of thing with Notre Dame. Pitching is not their bread and butter. They knew they were, what they were getting from John Michael Bertrand in starts. And then to have a guy like Tanner Cole have the multiple innings out of the bullpen and pitch 52 innings out of the bullpen is a considerable amount. So I think he's the second team reliever and finishes behind Palmquist for the reliever of the year. And then Blake Bales, he wasn't the Virginia closer, but the numbers look like a video game, Stu. What he was able to do to set it up to Stephen Shock for that Virginia team and piggyback off that great starting pitching that Virginia has. I think Bales and Cole Hepp are right behind Pomquist. Completely agree. On Bales, he rode, I think it was a 31-inning scoreless streak to start this year before he got nicked up for a couple runs. Um, and, and he sets up for Stephen Shock. And you look at Virginia, Andrew Abbott, Mike Basil, Nick Savino, and these two relievers – that's a, a formidable fivesome that someone's going to have to deal with in the ACC tournament and probably in a regional. Um, Cole Hepp is a, is a really interesting guy. Uh, Tennessee transfer, went JC route. 
newcomer there at Notre Dame, and he probably has the live, the most live arm of any uh, Notre Dame thrower. It's a multi-angle guy. He can really bring it, and you're going to see a lot of him in many situations for Notre Dame here in the postseason. So that's our reliever of the year look. And so let's conclude here with a true freshman of the year award in the ACC, and not a second-year freshman, but these guys were first time on campus uh, and experiencing the long grind of a of a college season. We talked about Kevin Parada, Brock Wilkin, both had really good years. Uh, at the end of the day, we're going Caden Grice, the first baseman of Clemson, uh, for the reasons that we uh, mentioned earlier, is our true freshman of the year. Yeah, another name even to throw in as one of those honorable mention is, is Kyle Teal, what he was able to do at Virginia. But I, but I think Grice was so dominant, and the power is real with Grice. And I think huh. he's going to be a guy that we're going to look at in a few years from now and say, hey, you know, he's going to be one of the top draft-eligible players uh, in the ACC. 13 homers, 9 doubles, 49 runs driven in, nearly a 600 slugging percentage. I think he's the clear freshman of the year. Yeah, he's a monster. 6'6", about 240. Watched him hit BP at North Carolina State. And he hit some frozen ropes that swear they looked like they were elevating over the 380 sign. And I was sitting next to a scout who just sort of chuckled in amusement watching this guy's unbelievable power. You mentioned Kyle Teal, a catcher, really a catalyst for Virginia. He was inserted in the lineup in March, never looked back, led that team in hitting at 311, a highly touted kid and an excitable kid who brought a lot of energy for Virginia. So really some exciting freshmen to to recognize this year and to look forward to in the coming years. And then to close out the coach of the year, I think this one is, is, is pretty obvious. He's the national coach of the year, in my opinion, in our opinion. And, of course, that's Link Jarrett. Didn't lose a series until the very last weekend. Uh, had to put a lot of new pieces uh, into place at Notre Dame, as well as change the culture in that locker room. And, boy, has he done a fantastic job. Yeah, you talk about not just changing the culture, but building a sustainable program year after year after year. This team was picked last in the Atlantic Division, huh. and they finish, you know, this is their best finish in ACC since they joined the conference, their first division title. They led the conference with 10 series wins. They had three sweeps. They're tied for the most conference wins they've ever had in their program's history. And the last time they had 25 conference wins, too, was in 1990 Jeez. in the Midwestern Collegiate Conference. There you, I don't, wow. It, it tells you all you need to know about how dominant this Notre Dame team was from start to finish. They went on a stretch to start the year where they didn't lose a series. They, they were that good that week in and week out, you knew what Notre Dame was going to do no matter who they played. And and to take that team that a couple of years ago was, you know, kind of in the cellar of the ACC was the joke of the conference and now be the best team, probably the only team from a, a national landscape that is going to be a national seed come tournament time is incredible. Yep, really happy for Link in that program. And I can tell you one thing, the recruiting is already on the upswing and uh, you're not going to hear uh, – we haven't heard the last in Notre Dame. Let me put it this way, that, that he's really going to have something in place here in the coming years at Notre Dame. And I think as an honorable mention, someone that I was able to watch up close and personal here is Elliot Avent. Been uh, at NC State for 25 years, one of the most consistent head coaches in all of the college game. Of course, they started 1-8. and eight. They had a COVID break. They lost two pitchers to an off-field incident. And what did they do? They finished 18-5 and five and worked their way, quite frankly – with a strong ACC showing into a number one regional seed uh, if things work out in the ACC tournament. So really happy for Elliot Avent and uh, what's come of that season there in Raleigh. 
And so last but not least, we're going to talk about the player of the year. Uh, you might uh, guess from uh, all that we've shared so far in this podcast, but uh, it was a, an easy decision, I think, in the end, given the premium position that he plays and, and the power that he showed in leading the Florida State offense. So our player of the year is catcher Matt Nelson of Florida State. Josh, what are your thoughts? I think it's a good choice. I think any other year to have Johnny Butler do what he did, hit over 400 with that power, lead that NC State team, you would get it. But when Matt Nelson did what he did and be first in the nation, home runs, tied for second in RBIs, his defense improved as well, and I think that was huge for Florida State. They've had a pretty good year, and I think the other thing that doesn't get recognized, when you're talking about a player like Matt Nelson, you talk about the offense, but defensively, he was pretty good. And Florida State's pitching staff has been one of the best in the conference. And I think that's part of it, that the catcher plays a part, that when the pitchers are performing like that, and I know he might not be calling the game like at the pro level, but whether you're stealing strikes or pitch framing, you're preventing wild pitches and pass balls and throwing out guys, I think that plays a huge part. And I think that's what gives Nelson the edge over Johnny Butler. Uh, I think that's an excellent point around managing that pitching staff. And as you said at the top of the show, Butler's your ACC player of the year just about any other year. Uh, the thing about Nelson that I also really like is is he dedicated himself to change his body coming into the season. Uh, you know, meet the, Mike Merton Jr. made a comment about how he transformed his body and has taken things so much more seriously, and he's made a lot of money this spring. So congratulations to Matt Nelson, draft-eligible catcher. Uh, you'll hear his name early uh, this coming summer in the MLB draft. So that's a wrap on our all ACC team and awards. And before we let you go, Josh, I know you're about ready to catch a flight here to, to go to Charlotte and call some games at the ACC tournament. Um, but it's really an interesting year for this conference because there are four or five teams that really can't feel you know too confident right now that they've locked up a regional bid and have some work to do uh, this coming weekend here in Charlotte. So what are you looking forward to this coming weekend uh, for the ACC tournament? Well, I, I think the way the conference has been all year long is you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to beat who. And obviously, you know, the top seeds in each pool have an advantage that if all three teams go one and one in pool play, it's the top seed that advances. So you're talking Notre Dame, Georgia Tech, NC State, and Miami have that advantage. But I think when you look at some of the games, there's some really interesting ones in there. Clemson and Louisville, which starts it off at 11 a.m. tomorrow, is not a game where you look at it, it's like, oh, these are the best two teams in the conference, but maybe the loser of that game misses out on the postseason. And I think that's something that those two teams know of, just given Louisville's shaky end to the regular season. And that's the same thing in the nightcap of Tuesday's game, of, of Tuesday's slate of games. Because if you look at Pitt and North Carolina, two teams that probably feel better than they do than Clemson and Louisville, but if you're on the wrong side of that and you lose the other game against the top-seeded NC State Wolfpack in your pool, you might be looking out of the NCAA tournament. So I think those are some big games. I'm curious to see who's going to win, just given that this is such a wide-open conference. I would imagine a team that's got good pitching will be able to sustain multiple wins over the course of four or five days, and I think that ultimately will prevail. Uh, here in the ACC tournament. Yeah, one thing that's going to be really interesting is, is how the committee looks at RPI as a factor in their overall assessment because there are a number of ACC teams with RPIs in the 40s and 50s where traditionally that's bubble territory and scary bubble territory. Georgia Tech at 42, Florida State at 46, uh, you got UVA at 44, 
you know, those teams I, I think are, are in good shape, but they probably aren't sleeping terribly soundly uh, at this point. So lots to, uh, to, to watch and unfold here in the coming days in the ACC tournament. And Josh, uh, we'll do this again ne- next week once the, the, uh, the field of 64 is announced. And, and we'll look at all the ACC uh, programs that earned a regional and what their, their fortunes look like uh, starting next week. Yeah, I would imagine we're going to see eight, nine, maybe even ten teams uh, get into the regional. So the ACC will have a chance to make a couple deep runs. I, I think the only host site you're probably looking at uh, is Notre Dame still, but they've had a heck of a year. And and again, I, I think this week in Charlotte is, is totally up for grabs, and I think this whole year of college baseball is up for grabs once the field of 64 is set. Yep, we'll break it all down for you next week and uh, hope you enjoyed the interview that we had with Bryant Gaines of North Carolina and Josh, as always, it was a blast uh, chopping it up about ACC baseball.